I'm Father Mitch Paqua, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we are working through some material on how to pray over the Gospels, how to engage with the Gospels prayerfully and come to know our Lord better. Now, we'd love to have you become part of the show, which you can do by adding your questions or comments during the live program, you can call in in North America to 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, you can call country code 1, area code 205 271 2980. And we'll try to move you right up to the front. Now, you can also send us questions and comments via email by writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com. Or you can follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now, today, we will continue discussing our Lord's temptations in the wilderness and especially on why was Jesus tempted by the devil and whom did Jesus think the devil might be? Uh, these are some things to help us also reflect more on Jesus, our Lord himself. Now, we're going through a book that I wrote called Praying the Gospels, Jesus Launches His Public Ministry. You can get a copy of this at EWTNRC.com. It is item 52687. 52687. And get a hold of that to help as we're going through this. All right. We are still considering Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. And at this time, I'd like us to take a look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says there, When Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay? So, at this point, we want to ask, why was Jesus tempted by the devil? Now, quite frankly, in my own life, and I suspect in the life, lives of most of you, you experience your temptations from inside of yourself. It comes from within. We have all kinds of temptations for anger and lust and gluttony, uh, selfishness, gossip, a lot of other temptations, laziness, uh, the, these uh, all kinds of temptations that we have. Why don't we have Jesus' temptations simply come from himself? Now, to answer that question, we have to take a look at what the sacred scripture teaches. 
a number of times the New Testament teaches that Jesus, our Lord, was without sin. And we can even begin this understanding by looking again at Isaiah 53, the famous prophecy of the suffering servant of the Lord. In Isaiah 53, verse 9, it says, and I quote, they made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This was a prophecy written right around the year 540 B.C. And it talks about this coming suffering servant having done nothing wrong, no deceit is in his mouth. This prophecy is picked up by the good thief who was crucified next to Jesus. Take a look at Luke chapter 23, verse 41, where it says, as a matter of fact, the thief is speaking to the not-so-good thief, the bad thief, and he says, and we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. I don't know how long he knew our Lord, but he certainly had a sense that the Lord had done nothing wrong. And given the way that he's being so honest about accepting the punishment he knows he deserved for his crimes, it's interesting that he has that insight into Christ. And I think it's something good just to think about him. We are better able to have deeper insight into Christ when we are honest about our own failings. The more honest we are about our own weaknesses and sin, the more insight we might get into Christ. It's an interesting principle to think about. However, this teaching of our Lord being without sin recurs throughout the New Testament in different authors. For instance, St. Paul wrote it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When St. Paul says he made him to be sin, he is thinking about the Hebrew technical term for a sin offering, which is the word chatat, chatat. And chatat means sin, but in many contexts, it like in the uh, book of Leviticus, it refers to the sin offering. So Christ became a sin offering, 
Achatat. So even though he knew no sin, and in fact, the great um, Saint Anselm in his Cur Deus Homo, a book about why did God become man, teaches that he needed to be sinless as well as fully human in order to be the proper sin offering. At the same time, he needed to be infinite God as the proper sin offering for our sins. Then twice in the letter to the Hebrews, we see that Christ is without sin. Hebrews was written at the latest 65 or 66 AD. And it, it says in Hebrews 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. So it speaks there of Christ being tested, which is the same terminology for temptation. Being tempted and tested is the same reality. And he was tempted like we are, but he didn't give in to sin. Also in Hebrews 7, verse 26, it says, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Now, the priests, according to the uh, order of Aaron, that is the priests of ancient Israel, were sinners. And that's why the book of uh, Leviticus and the book of Numbers insists that the priests offer a sin offering for themselves. In fact, they offer a goat as a sin offering for all of Israel, but a bull for their own sins, because in some ways more is expected of them. So they offer a bigger sacrifice, but it brings out that they committed sin and they needed to offer sacrifice, sin offering, chatat. Then it's not only in Paul and Hebrews, but also in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, where he is quoting Isaiah 53, verse 9. And in 1 Peter 2, 22, it says, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Direct quote. And then finally, in the first letter of St. John, chapter 3, verse 5, it says, you know that he was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So, as scholars would say, this teaching that Jesus is without sin is found at different layers of the early Christian tradition. It's in the Gospel of Luke, it's in Hebrews, St. Paul, St. Peter, and St. John, writing 
to different communities in different parts of the ancient world, but with the same message, Jesus is without sin. And this is very important for us to reflect on because there is a modern tendency to see Jesus as a sinner like the rest of us, that he's just one more human being, maybe a bit better than we are, maybe having a slightly more noble teaching than many of us, but basically Jesus is the same as the rest of us. Um, this is an argument that shows up lots of places. If you ever saw the uh, movie uh, Elmer Gantry, you would see there that uh, one of the newspaper reporters had said, well, Jesus is, you know, has good teachings, good ideals, but he's just like one of us. He's not a prophet. He's not the son of God or anything. We also see in the novel, The Last Temptation of Christ, which was written by a Greek named Nikos Kazantzakis. Nikos Kazantzakis portrayed Christ as having temptations from within himself. His last temptation came uh, as he hung on the cross and he had a temptation of lust for Mary Magdalene. And this came, this rose up from within him. Now, of course, the Greek Orthodox Church excommunicated Kazantzakis for this. And Catholics certainly agree with their judgment because Kazantzakis is saying that Jesus has concupiscence, that is, disordered desires, and that those disordered desires, of course, come from original sin. Therefore, Jesus must have original sin like the rest of us. Now, the purpose of Kazantzaki's novel is to have Christ be like any other man in the Middle East. He's someone that you could resonate with. He did something similar in his uh, novel about St. Francis of Assisi and wants to portray him as a man of the Mediterranean world. And, you know, if you know that world, you say, oh, yeah, I can see this. But what he did, while St. Francis did have original sin and plenty of actual sin before his conversion, Jesus is sinless. And Kazantzaki's novel, and later on the movie called The Last Temptation of Christ, also has Jesus committing, you know, having the, these temptations from within. And therefore, uh, he has original sin. This is easier for modern people to understand. They can accept that. However, what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, where it is, and it says, I'll just read it to you. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
Jesus is the new Adam. And as such, as the new Adam, he does not have original sin and he has no temptations coming from within his own disordered desires, those desires we call concupiscence. And he is different than we are. Now, he's still tempted, but the temptations don't come from within him. It's not from concupiscence. It doesn't come from a fallen, disordered humanity such as we have. Throughout the Gospels, all of our Lord's temptations come from outside himself. They all come from outside himself. Here, at, the be at this early beginning of the public ministry, it is Satan who tempts Jesus. Later on, we would see in Matthew 16, verse 22, that it is Peter who tempts him. And we can read there in Matthew 16, 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. That Peter did not want Jesus to talk about his future crucifixion. And he didn't want the crucifixion to happen. He only understands on a human level. And he's just been appointed at that place. He's been appointed the rock on which the church would be built but he still doesn't understand Jesus by any means. So this is where Peter tempts him. We also see that the crowd tempts Jesus in John 6, verse 14 to 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, namely multiplying loaves and fish, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, quoting from Malachi chapter uh, uh, three, verse one. And when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The crowd wanted him as a king that would give bread. And what we see every time these outside forces have these, offer him temptations, he says no. And this is why we have to answer the most basic question that Jesus himself asks his disciples and therefore asks us, who do you say Jesus is? Peter correctly answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ also called himself the Son of Man. This is how in Scripture we see that he is truly God the Son and truly the Son of Man. But we have to ask ourselves what we think about his humanity. We accept with Hebrews that he is tempted in every way, but he doesn't sin. That's in Hebrews 4.15, we also said. 
do I want to see Jesus as another sinner like myself? Do I like thinking about him as having the same disordered desires that I have? Do I want him to have concupiscence? And then I have to ask myself, why would I want him to be like me in having these inner temptations? What satisfaction would I derive from that? Why do I want that? Why do I need him at my level of being disordered? So I can relate to him? Or do I accept the scriptural teaching that he is without sin? Do I accept what the Holy Spirit reveals throughout the New Testament that he has no internal moral disorder? And then if I accept that, do I then turn to him to help me overcome my temptations? Is Jesus someone to whom I can turn for strength? He overcame temptations. This is a great thing to think about. Well, how would Jesus know what it's like to struggle with temptations if he didn't give in to him? No, it's only the person who does not give in to temptation who really knows how strong temptation can be. This is a great insight by the great C.S. Lewis. People who give in to temptation don't understand how much stronger it could have been. It's the ones who don't give in to temptation that really know how strong the temptation can be. And that would be Christ. And I recommend that at the end of this, we pray uh, a prayer that St. Ignatius of Loyola includes in his spiritual exercises, where it says, soul of Christ, sanctify me, Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O oh, good Jesus, hear me. Within your wounds, hide me. Let me never be separated from you. From the wicked foe, defend me. At the hour of my death, call me and bid me come to you so that with your angels and saints, I may praise you for all eternity. Let's take a break and we'll come back and take a look at who the devil is. So please stay with us. back. We'd now like to take a look at the fourth meditation in this second chapter of my book. And this is a meditation still, we're, I mean, we're still on Matthew 4, verse 1. These first four meditations have all been on verse 1. 
And I mention that because it's important to see how much depth you can find in each verse. And it's very important to, to see that depth. This is going to be about the devil who tempts Jesus. Who is this devil? Now again, the verse reads, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So, we have to take a look at who that is. The Hebrew word Satan means accuser. That's, that's what the word means. So, um, that's very important to know. And in Greek, the word Diabolos, from which Spanish gets Diablo, and we get the word devil in, in English. Diabolos is a word that means prosecuting attorney. That's why you also refer to it as a counselor. Uh, we, we still call uh, uh, excuse me, not, not counselor, sorry, sorry, that's, that's the next word, um, prosecuting attorney um, in court is a diabolos. That's its secular meaning, but this religious meaning uh, refers to the evil spirit. But that's one, that's part of his nature. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it talks about how uh, when Satan in verse, chapter 12, that now is the accuser of our brethren fallen. Ha kategoron, the accuser. So Christ, so Satan is an accuser. Now, in a Greek courtroom, the character, character who would be opposite of the diabolos is the parakletos, the paraclete. Parakletos in Greek means defense attorney or counselor for the defense. And that's where we, that's, I slipped ahead, that the word counselor we use in courtroom. It's a counselor, what is your position on this? You know, you see that in courtroom scenes. That's the Greek word parakletos. And we see that it becomes this advocate, in fact, in Polish. One of the words for a lawyer is advocat. It comes from the same Latin root, advocate, that translates paracletos, uh, which broken down uh, in its parts means to be called to one side. That's what you do, but to help you. We see that the word paracletos, paraclete, refers to Jesus. A lot of folks don't pay attention to this, but in the first letter of John, chapter 2, verse 1, it said, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, and the Greek word there is parakletos. Parakletos. We have an advocate or paraclete with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I remember being quite surprised the first time I read that passage in Greek and then noticed that, you know, Jesus is a paraclete. That's uh, very, very important. 
And the word parakletos is also said of the Holy Spirit a number of times. In John chapter 14, verse 16 and 26, chapter 15, verse 26, and chapter 16, verse 7, four times the Holy Spirit, also known as the Spirit of Truth, is called our paraclete. So here's the idea. Satan, the accuser, is also Diabolos, the devil, or the prosecuting attorney, who tries to condemn us while Jesus, our Lord, and the Holy Spirit are our defense attorneys, our advocates or counselors for the defense. And they plead for us sinners. That's why we see on the cross our blessed Lord saying in Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when you understand this courtroom scene, where, by the way, God the Father is the judge, it's not a bad idea to have the son of the judge as your attorney for your defense. It's a good idea. But you can also see why in this courtroom scene where Satan is the prosecuting attorney, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the defense attorneys, that Jesus calls the, whole, the devil his adversary, and that he is referred to as the adversary. And this is not some cartoon figure who's just trying to get us to be a little bit naughty. Mm -mm. We have to remember that Satan hates us. He hates you. He wants you to go to hell. And when he says go to hell, he means it in a way that nobody who is on earth means it. He means it with a viciousness that he knows fully. So this is something that he wants. He wants our destruction, and he wants us to become hateful persons. He hates us, and he wants us to be hateful people. This is his goal. Now, our Lord has a very, very clear and strong teaching about Satan in John 8, 44, where he teaches that uh, about Satan in response to people who question his divinity. He's already teaching um, the, that he's the, he's the true God. He, this is where he says, I am takes a name for himself, and he tells those opponents of his divinity, says that you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand with the truth because there is no truth 
in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So by calling Satan a liar, the father of lies, he connects the lying spirit that was sent to false prophets in the Old Testament who enticed various people, like in 1 Kings 22, um, sent a lying spirit into the false prophets. And anybody who speaks falsely is thereby working with, for Satan. And furthermore, he is a murderer from the beginning. This is one of the reasons why when he says of Judas that the Judas uh, is a devil in John chapter 6, verse 70 and 71, did I not choose you, the twelve, and, uh, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, who was to betray him. That it's very important also at the Last Supper in John 13, 2, that it was the devil who had put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. And this Jesus excuse me, this same evil spirit is the ruler of this world who has to be cast out, as we see in John 12, 31. So this is a very important part of teaching of this devil that came to tempt Jesus. And it's because the devil is the God of this world and who is our enemy, who wants to make us hateful so that we would be in hell, that we have to understand how to stand up against him, that we have to see the kind of influence, the malicious influence Satan has in the world, as our Lord Jesus and St. Paul taught. We have to be aware of Satan's deceptions how he lies to get his way. We have to be alert to his tricks in tempting us and be aware of his empty promises, as we say in our baptismal vows, and have to be alert not to follow him into sin. And it's very important for us to reflect on past temptations, to see which ones come from our disordered desires and which ones are tricks of the evil spirit. This is very, very important for us. And more importantly than even our understanding, the most important thing for each one of us is to repent for any of the times we have given into temptation. What are the ways in which we have given in? and to ask God to forgive us, especially by praying the Our Father. And then, if we have committed mortal sin, to get to confession and repent of our sin. In this way, we can also put on, as St. Paul said, that full armor of God to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, the world rulers of the present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places.
Take a look at Ephesians 6, verses 11 to 12 to understand what we're up against and what Jesus was up against. All right. Well, let's stop there and we'll take a look at the temptations. We'll take a look at each one of our Lord's temptations specifically in the next couple episodes. Now what I'd like to do is go to a caller. We have a caller on the line. James, are you there? Yes. Where are you from? Aberdeen, North Carolina. Good to have you with us. And what can we do for you? Uh, my question is, how do you explain to people who believe that Jesus wasn't perfect because he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if, be, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. In other words, I don't want to die. And then right. on the cross, my right. God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? I understand it, but can you, can you explain it to people who believe he wasn't God and wasn't perfect? Okay, let's take a look at the first one. Do you, uh, James, you still there? Yes. Yeah. Have you ever been close to death? Not that I know of. Okay. All right. Well, I have. And it is a natural and good instinct to not want to die in the face of danger. When there is danger, it is a good thing to go away from it. Now, there are times where you cannot. For instance, if you are engaged in battle, if you're at war, you can't abandon your post just because it's dangerous. You have to let courage come in. But it is natural not to want to be shot to death or have a bomb fall on your head, or to be uh, you know, attacked and eaten by sharks. That is a good thing. So there's nothing wrong with him not wanting to die. And, they, and folks have to pay attention to that and realize that uh, that's not a sin. Secondly, in terms of the other passage, where it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where does that come from, James? Do you know? Well, there is a, I don't know, you would know better than me because you've been a priest a long time, but from my understanding of it, there's a, there's a verse in like Psalm 2. No, Psalm 22. Or something which says, why yeah. did they forsake the Lord, which I read as, you know, why, why did they not love God? In other words, yeah. I love those who are crucifying God. So he right. was perfect. Okay, here's, here's the thing. He's quoting Psalm 22. Uh-huh. And it says, why have you forsaken me? And then goes on immediately. And yet you dwell in the praises of Israel. And then as you keep going down in that psalm, you see they have numbered all my bones. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Isn't that what just happened to him? He'd been scourged and then the nails went through his hands and feet. And then the psalm continues and says, 
that they have divided my clothing among them and they cast lots for my clothes. That also just happened. By quoting that psalm, he is pointing out that that psalm predicted his specific sufferings on the cross. And these were not merely some accident, but was mentioned prophetically in Psalm 22 and by citing, because see, in his days, the Psalms did not have numbers yet. The numbers were not assigned to the Psalms until the year 1000 AD by an English monk. Before that, all you did was quote the opening line, and that was the title of the whole psalm. And that's what he's doing there. And then if you keep reading after that even, after those prophecies, you see that it becomes a psalm that begins to refer to the Eucharist. So, again, that's nothing sinful. But some of these folks will get such an idea because they don't know enough scripture to see the Bible in context. And remember a principle stated by an old friend of mine, uh, a uh, Baptist preacher, Dr. Walter Martin, who said that people take texts out of their context usually for a pretext of error. Right, James? Thank you very much, Father Packwell. God bless you. We're going to take another break. We'll be back in just a few minutes with more of your calls and emails, so please stay with us. Welcome back. Um, something that I w- want to invite you to do, if possible, is to help out the people in Ukraine with various food, medicine, and clothes. Uh, this is a major, major problem. And the Knights of Columbus are among the various organizations trying to get them non-lethal supplies. The uh, way to do that is to go to the website kofc, so kofc.org, kofc.org slash Ukraine. Um, And they will make sure that... uh, I remember meeting some of the first Knights of Columbus from Ukraine, along with the Archbishop. We interviewed him, in fact, and they're just getting going as as a service, uh, uh, Catholic service organization in Ukraine. And we very much want to support the Knights 
in their work. Okay, so that's very important. And also tomorrow at 8 p.m. on EWTN Live, we will talk with Deacon Jim Vargas about the legacy of caring for the poor and the homeless in the San Diego area. It was started by Father Joe Carroll, and the efforts of Father Joe's villages are able to help change the lives of individuals and families by showing them the love of Christ. So that'll be very, very important. All right, so let's take a look uh, at uh, some emails. Um, there's one email we have here. Father, twice recently, I've heard a cardinal at a confirmation and a priest claim that Jesus was unable to perform miracles and was less than until after the Spirit descended upon him at baptism. Um, do you agree that Christ subordinated his hum human will in deference to his divine will? If so, is it correct to state that from birth he knew of his divine nature? Um, you know, first, a, a couple things, a couple things to, to deal with this. Um, to, I'm not sure how precise they were trying to be, but to say that Christ was unable to do a miracle until the Spirit descended upon him would be not very precise. He was able, he was fully, infinitely God. So you don't want to say that he is unable. And at the same time, we do want to, to, to recognize that he doesn't do miracles until the manifestation of the Blessed Trinity at the Jordan. So remember, at the we talked about this uh, earlier, that all three divine persons are made manifest at our Lord's baptism. The Father speaks, the Holy Spirit hovers, and the Son is baptized. And then the public ministry begins. But I wouldn't say that he was unable to do miracles because you would have a certain risk of the doctrine of, uh, at least a form of the doctrine of adoptionism, that only when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus was, did he become God the Son? That was an old heresy. I don't think that's what the cardinal meant or the, the priest, I suspect not. But there was an old heresy saying that he was adopted by God at the baptism. And you don't want to get there. Yeah, that's not what Scripture teaches in any way. And so you don't want to say that. Um, and then, to, again, it's, I wouldn't say that precisely where, that Christ subordinated his human will in deference to his divine will. What I would suggest is that his human will 
and his uh, divine will were brought into uh, unity. Uh, Or better yet, they were brought into full agreement. So at Gethsemane, going back to the earlier question that we had from James in North Carolina, that, you know, his human will wanted to live. His divine will certainly wanted to do the Father's will. And he brought his human will and divine will into full agreement by making a decision in, in both human and divine will. So, again, I wouldn't talk about it subordinated, but brought into agreement. Um, and is it, uh, uh, if so, is it correct to state that from birth he knew of his divine nature? Well, we, we can't, we don't have anything that he said at birth, of course. But what we do see is that when he was lost in the temple, he was well aware that he was in his father's house. Calling God one's father was not the way Jewish people spoke about God. The idea that God is personally one's father was not typical. They say he's the father of the nation. Yeah, he's the father to Israel. And Israel is his firstborn. Yeah, that they said. But the first and the only rabbi I'm aware of who says that God is his own father, besides Jesus, is Yohanan ben Zakkai, who is alive and, and showing leadership in the 70s and 80s AD. So he's a full generation after Christ. For all we know, he could have been influenced by Christ in some way. We don't know that exactly, but he certainly seems aware of things. He's the only rabbi that speaks about God as his father. Um, Otherwise, they don't. So um, he's well aware of God as his father. Okay? All right. Uh, And therefore, if he's God's his father, then he's God the son. Now, I have another caller. Gavin, where are you calling from? Gavin, you there? I don't hear him. So I think uh, we lost him. But the um, uh, we have a, a YouTube viewer who asks, um, you know, Father Mitch, do you have any particular brief pl- prayers that you recommend in the face of temptation? Certainly, I would recommend strongly the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our safeguard against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince of the heavenly host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all his evil spirits. This is a very good prayer. during temptation. Of course, the Lord's Prayer prays that we not be led into temptation where Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into temptation. Um, That would be another good one as well. 
And, you know, one of the things uh, I'd like to do as we end, as we did last time, I have this image of Our Lady of Fatima. This, was an, this is an icon written for the uh, Ukrainian Greek Catholics. We did a program about this icon some time ago. The prayer that goes with it is one I'd like to use. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Gazing upon the icon of your appearance at Fatima, we see you, Blessed Mother, with hands uplifted in prayer to your Son and God for all his suffering people. You gave warning concerning the chastisements about to visit the earth offering yourself as our unassailable wall of protection then and always, awed by your motherly care for us sinners. We cry out with grateful love, rejoice, daughter of God the Father, rejoice, mother of God the Son, rejoice, spouse of the Holy Spirit, rejoice, temple of the all-sacred trinity, rejoice, ladder foreshadowed in Jacob's dream. Rejoice, sacred jar of the heavenly manna. Rejoice, teacher of prayer and repentance to your children. Rejoice, mother of all who run to you and your mantle as to a fortified city. Let us pray for the people of Ukraine to be delivered from this very evil oppression and this very evil attack by the Russian Federation. And may God bless all of you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill, and we'll pay our bills too. Thank you. Mm -hmm.